But this is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and on their heart I will write it, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. They will not teach again each man his neighbor and each man his brother, saying, Know the Lord. Why? For they will all know me, from the least of them to the greatest of them. Hello, and welcome to Search the Scriptures the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Carl Brogi. Dr. Brogi is senior pastor at Community Bible Church of Beaufort, South Carolina. We are in chapter 9 of the book of Romans, and today in a message entitled Stumbling Over Truth, Pastor Brogi looks at verses 25 and 26 and examines the relationship between God and the people of Israel. For greater context and clarity, We'll also be spending some time in the book of Hosea. Take the word of God with you this morning and turn to Romans, the ninth chapter, Romans chapter 9. This is the seventh sermon in Romans 9 as we've been unfolding this great chapter, a chapter that deals with the doctrine of sovereign election. This chapter has certainly sparked a lot of debate since the time of the Protestant Reformation. Please know that all Christians believe in the doctrine of sovereign election. Anyone who says they believe the Bible must say that they believe in the doctrine of election. Ephesians 1.4 says he chose us. Or you could say he elected us before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. There is a supernatural dimension to our salvation in which God rescues us out of the deadness of our sin. Paul said in Ephesians, you're dead in your trespasses and sins. Dead people can't respond. A corpse can't get out of a coffin. He said in, to the church at Rome, there is none who seeks God, not even one. If we are as rebellious as the devil and as unresponsive as a corpse, unless God first moved, none of us would be saved. By his doing, we're in Christ Jesus. And so the Lord would say, no one can come to me unless the Father who has sent me draws him. We call this process of God bringing a person to himself divine election. The point of debate is not does God elect. The point of debate is how does God elect. Now, I know sometimes man has a way of complicating salvation. God doesn't, but man does. Listen, if a little boy or a little girl were lost and they came to you and the only thing you could do for them was to draw a map, wouldn't you make it just as simple as could be that they could find their way? God wants us to preach the simplicity of the message. And sometimes in man's intellect, we stumble over that simplicity. Jesus prayed to the Father in Matthew 11, you have hidden these things from the wise and intelligent and you have revealed them to infants. Now, God doesn't put a premium on ignorance, and nor does he penalize intellectualism. But please understand, as this portion of Scripture reminds us, the gospel is very simple. Now, this text that we're going to look at is not simple, but the gospel is simple. And even in this text, it is highly complex, what we would call the meat of the word, the simplicity of the gospel is found. I hope you have found it now. Romans 9, we want to begin reading in verse 25, where we left off last time. As he also says in Hosea, I will call those who are not my people, my people, and her who is not beloved, 
Beloved, and it shall be that in that place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they shall be called sons of the living God. Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, though the number of the sons of Israel be like the sand of the sea, it is the remnant that will be saved. For the Lord will execute his word on the earth thoroughly and quickly. And just as Isaiah foretold, unless the Lord of Sabaoth had left to us a posterity, we would have become like Sodom and would have resembled Gomorrah. What shall we say then, that Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness attained righteousness, even the righteousness which is by faith? But Israel pursuing a law of righteousness did not arrive at this law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as though it were by works, they stumbled over the stumbling stone. Just as it is written, behold, I lay in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and he who believes in him will not be disappointed. Now, don't get lost in the forest. Let's think about the flow and the context. This is indeed a challenging passage. And if I just wanted to preach barn-burning sermons every week, I wouldn't go to this text. And if I wanted to preach passages that were easy to understand, I wouldn't go to this passage. But I'm committed to going through entire books of the Bible verse by verse because all Scripture is given by divine inspiration and it's profitable. And though this is a challenging passage, it's profitable for us today. Sometimes when you look at a passage in context, it just begins to open up and blossom. It's like a ring in a setting. You can appreciate the diamond in the setting so much more than just laying there all by itself. So let's think about where we've been here in this ninth chapter. If you remember in the opening verses, he says, for instance, in verse 2, I have great sorrow and unceasing grief in my heart. If you remember in chapter 8, he looked at Christ and his heart was overwhelmed with joy. But in chapter 9, he looks at the Hebrew people and he weeps. He says in verse 3, For I could wish that I myself were cursed, separated from Christ, for the sake of my brethren, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. He was willing to be cursed and separated from Christ if it could somehow mean the salvation of his Jewish brethren. He's a remarkable man. He told the Philippians he would be willing to stay out of heaven for the sake of the saved. And he tells the Romans he would be willing to go to hell for the sake of the lost. And the one thing that adds to his grief is the privileges that God had given to this people. We spent one sermon on just verses 4 and 5 looking at seven blessings or privileges God had given them that should have led them to repentance, but it only led them to hardness and obstinacy of heart. Then if you look down at verses 6 to 13, we saw how God chose the people of Israel. And God's choosing was not a mistake, but part of his sovereign choice. Now, we've talked about how some Christians have thought about the covenant that God made with Abraham as a conditional covenant. And they reason that because of the unbelief of the Jews throughout the centuries. And so they have come to the conclusion that God has abandoned the people of Israel and that the church has become the new Israel. And if you begin with that faulty premise, then the way you interpret chapter 9 is going to be colored. And you will see the ninth chapter not dealing with God's selection of Israel out of all the peoples of the earth, but God individually electing some. And so we saw how some understood verse 7, a quotation from Genesis 21, when he says, through Isaac, your descendants will be named. And then we looked at verse 13, which was a quotation of Malachi 1. Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. 
And if you start with the presupposition that God has abandoned Israel and the church, the body of Christ, has replaced Israel, then you will interpret those verses in a faulty way. But we went back and we looked carefully at each of those verses, all of the verses that he's quoted from the Old Testament and their original historical context. But because some start with that premise, when they think of the doctrine of election, they say, well, God has chosen these to go to heaven and these to go to hell. Some for salvation and some for damnation. That it's not up to man to decide. Man has no choice at all. He only says yes because God first says yes to him. But again, as we saw these verses and in their context, two babies in the womb were two nations and God chose one nation. God had to choose some nation to bring the Messiah. And God in his sovereignty chose to choose the people of Israel. Then anticipating the objections we saw in verse 14, he asks a question, what shall we say then? There is no injustice with God is there that he would choose Israel. May it never be. And then we looked, if you notice, in verses 15 through 18, God's dealing with the king of Egypt. And you will remember through the Old Testament illustration of the Pharaoh that God did not deal with him unfairly, but justly. That God only hardens his heart because he first hardens his heart towards God. And so Paul, again, anticipating the objection of his critics, asked two questions in verse 19. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault for who resists his will? And so starting with this verse, he shows that no one has a leg to stand on in questioning the righteousness and the sovereign judgments of God. And so he answers those questions with three questions. Look at verse 20. On the contrary, who are you, O man? Who answers back to God? Who do you think you are? Paraphrase. The thing molded will not say to the molder, why did you make me like this, will it? Of course not. Or does not the potter have a right over the clay to make from the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for common use? Absolutely. God is God. God is sovereign. And if he chooses as the potter to choose Israel out of all the nations of the earth, that that is his right. If he wants to choose the descendants of Isaac over Ishmael, that's his prerogative. If he wants to choose Jacob over Esau, that's his choice. God is God, and if God wants to show mercy and compassion on the people of Israel in making them his select people in which to bring the Christ, he has every right to do so. And we saw this picture of a potter and a clay coming from Jeremiah chapter 18. And we went back and we studied that chapter, and we saw that that chapter pictures Israel as a piece of clay, not individuals, but a whole nation as a piece of clay and that God as the potter is shaping and crafting his purposes to take place. And so God elected Israel to be his chosen people, but Israel hardened their heart towards God. And so those who looked around at the Jewish people in Paul's day and they saw utter unbelief, and when they looked around in Calvin's day and they saw widespread unbelief among the Jewish people, they could only come to one conclusion. They can no longer be God's people. God has abandoned Israel. And so Paul here at the end of this ninth chapter is going to remind us that God foresaw all of this. 
that God was not taken by surprise. He saw the unbelief of Israel. And so two simple points. First, if you're taking notes, I want you to think about the unbelief of Israel as it is prophesied. The unbelief of Israel prophesied. Notice, if you will now, verse 25. As he also says in Hosea, I will call those who are not my people, my people, and her who is not beloved, beloved. Now, if you have the New American Standard, you will know a change in typeset. It goes to all capital letters, which tells you that this is an Old Testament quotation. And so beginning here in verse 25, he gives two quotations from the prophet Hosea and then a few quotations from the prophet Isaiah to remind us that this didn't happen by accident, that this was God's sovereign plan that Israel would not believe. God knew it was going to happen and God was going to work through their unbelief. Now, to really appreciate the quotation and to understand it, we need to go back to the book of Hosea. I don't suspect too many of you have been having your quiet time there, but go to Hosea, would you? Uh, If you're new to the Bible, look at the table of contents or just find Psalms that is about dead center in your Bible and then skim to the right and you'll come to Daniel. And right after Daniel, you will come to the prophet Hosea. We call him a minor prophet, him and 11 others. There are minor prophets, a designation given since the fourth century, not because they are unimportant, But they were given that designation because of the length of material that they gave us. All of the minor prophets, all 12 of them are shorter than Isaiah alone, whom we would call a major prophet. But he's no less inspired and no less important than any of the major prophets. Hosea preaches for 40 years to the northern kingdom. If you remember, there was a time when Israel was united, all 12 tribes under its first three kings. Because of the rebelliousness of Solomon, God said, I'm going to divide the kingdom. I'll wait until you die, but I'll do it through your son. And so it splits in two. Ten northern tribes called Israel or Ephraim after the largest of the ten tribes. And the two southern tribes called Judah. So initially they're all called Israel, but then later just the ten tribes are called Israel and the two southern are called Judah. Here's the prophet Hosea. And he's preaching to the ten northern tribes. Look at chapter 1, if you will, in verse 2. Notice how this prophet opens. God says to him, Go take to yourself a wife of harlotry and have children of harlotry, for the land commits flagrant harlotry, forsaking the Lord. Now some say, if you've read many commentaries on Hosea, that Hosea's wife, Gomer, was living immorally before she married him. But God said, marry her anyway. Uh, The other view, which I take, is that she was not living in harlotry, but she fell into harlotry. Now understand that the word harlot in the Bible is not used simply of a formalized prostitute. In fact, most of the time it's used in the Bible, it's used of anyone who commits adultery. So God calls someone who commits adultery a harlot. They're acting like a prostitute. And God has this prophet marry this woman who becomes unfaithful because God wants to use Hosea as a picture of God's faithfulness. And he wants to use Gomer, his wife, as a picture of Israel's unfaithfulness. That's one reason. There's a second reason he has to marry marry this woman because God wants Israel to know how he feels about idolatry. 
If you've read Hosea, the people in his day were known for taking advantage of oppressing the poor, but also, and most flagrantly, for worshiping idols. An idol in the Bible is not just some object that you bow down and worship at, but it's anything that you put above God. So Paul will say to the church at Coloss, therefore consider the members of your earthly body as dead to immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed, which amounts to idolatry. For some people, idolatry is smoking dope. For others, it's taking pills. For others, it's living in sexual immorality. For others, it's being greedy. For others, it's hoarding things. There's a host of things. Anything that you put above God is called idolatry in the Bible. And Hosea teaches us that it hurts the heart of God when God's people are unfaithful to Him. It is a form of spiritual adultery when we give ourselves to someone other than the Lord fully. Now remember, we've been speaking all the way through Romans 9 of the unconditional covenant that God made with the Jewish people. And God's going to illustrate that through Hosea in a rather interesting way. Hosea and Gomer are going to have three children. And God is going to tell the prophet what he should name these three children. Because these three children become a picture of God's judgment and discipline on Israel. Each name has prophetic significance. Look at chapter 1 and verse 6. We're going to deal just with the second and third child because those are the two children that Paul references in his quotation. Look at Hosea 1.6. I'm setting the way for the quotation he's making. Then she conceived again and gave birth to a daughter. And the Lord said to him, Name her Lo-Ruhamah, for I will no longer have compassion on the house of Israel that I would ever forgive them. So the second daughter is called Lo-Ruhamah. And if you have the NAS, it gives you the literal rendering of the Hebrew out in the margin. It means no compassion or no pity because God was going to show no compassion, no pity on the people of Israel at this point. He had had it up to here. They had repented, and they would get right, and they would go right back, and so their repentance was insincere. And sometimes God does the same with His people today. There comes a point where God says, I've had enough, and His discipline is of the most severe nature, where He takes a person home to be with Jesus at a time when they should not have gone home, but as an expression of His love and discipline. She gives birth to a third child. Look at verses uh, 8 and 9. When she had weaned Lo-Ruhamah, she conceived and gave birth to a son. And the Lord said, name him Lo-Ami, for you are not my people and I am not your God. And so Lo-Ami is the Hebrew that literally means not my people. And so God said that name is to be given because you are not my people and I am not your God. In practice, because of all of your idolatry and your wicked behavior that is contrary to worshiping me, you're not acting as my people and so I will not act as your God. And so God predicted judgment. Now judgment had already been witnessed. Remember, he preaches for 40 years. The first child they had, I didn't mention it, was Jezreel, which means literally God sows or God scatters. So God is going to scatter the nation like wheat, like seed, uh, when he brings down the Assyrians in judgment. And the people had already witnessed that. 
And so he reminds them that God is not done yet. God is going to continue to deal with his people. So when we read in Romans 9, don't leave Hosea, when Paul says, I will call those who are not my people, my people, and those who are not my beloved, beloved, remember he's referring to a rebellious nation, namely Israel. Now turn over to chapter 2. He's looking down the corridors of time when God is going to reverse the situation, when God is going to give them a new set of names. Look at Hosea 2 and let's pick it up in verse 16 so we get the flow of context moving into our verse this morning. It will come about in that day, declares the Lord, that you will call me Ishi. Ish is the Hebrew word for man or husband. Ishi means my husband. And will no longer, you will no longer call me Bailey, meaning my Baal. God is looking at a future day and Hosea will spell it out, not at the first coming of Messiah, but at the second coming of Messiah, where the Jewish people will come into a living relationship with the Lord. Now, the word ish, ishi, my husband, or Bailey, my husband, those are synonyms in Hebrew. And so in different passages in the Old Testament, the word translated husband is sometimes Baal or Bailey or ish or ishi. But there's coming a day when because of the worship of Baal and even to take part of his name on your lips will be so repulsive to the Jewish people because of the wickedness of idolatry in their full and complete repentance. They're not going to even use the name Bailey. They're only going to call God Ishi, my husband. Verse 17, For I will remove the names of the Baals from her mouth so that they will be mentioned by their names no more. In that day, I will also make a covenant with them, for them, with the beasts of the field, the birds of the sky, and the creeping things of the ground. And I will abolish the bow, the sword, and war from the land, and will make them lie down in safety. When will this happen? It will happen at the end of the great tribulation period when Jesus comes back, When the wolf will lay down with the lamb, the baby will play next to the cobra's nest and not be hurt, and God will bring peace amongst the people of Israel. Isaiah 2.4, you might want to write that in the margin next to verse 18. Let me read it to you. If you've ever been to the United Nations, right in the front, there's a placard, a big stone granite piece with Isaiah 2.4 written on it. And they will hammer their swords into plowshares, and their spears, into pruning hooks. Nation will not lift up sword against nation, and never again will they learn war. Now, the United Nations thinks they're going to pull it off, but they're not. It's not until the Prince of Peace comes back, and the context, this verse, is fulfilled when Jesus Christ comes back. And what our government has been trying to do since the inception of Israel in 1948 to bring peace into that land, they're never going to pull off. But God will pull off. Now, they should try. 
We should be peacemakers, but it's not going to ultimately happen until Jesus comes back. Now look at verse 19 of chapter 2. I will betroth you to me forever. Yes, I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice and loving kindness and in compassion. And I will betroth you to me in faithfulness. Then you will know the Lord. And so God is speaking of this coming betrothal that will mark a new relationship with the people of Israel where they will come to know the Lord. This is the promise of the new covenant. We celebrate it every time as Gentiles at the Lord's Supper. There is a new covenant, a new deal, a new testament that the prophets spoke of. Jeremiah said this, Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel, that's the northern kingdom, and with the house of Judah, that's the southern kingdom. Not like the covenant which I made with their fathers in the day I took them out of by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant which they broke, although I was a husband to them. I was faithful, they weren't. But this is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and on their heart I will write it, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. They will not teach again each man his neighbor and each man his brother, saying, Know the Lord. Why? For they will all know me, from the least of them to the greatest of them, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and their sin I will remember no more. When will this happen? If you've read Jeremiah, you know when it will happen. It will happen at the end of a period of time called the time of Jacob's trouble. Jesus references this in the Olivet Discourse in Matthew 24 and 25. We call it commonly today the Great Tribulation, a time of unsurpassed suffering and judgment on the earth. And God is going to use that time to awaken the eyes of the people of Israel, and they are going to say, Jesus is Lord. They're going to come to know the Lord. Now look at verse 23 of Hosea 2. This is the verse that Paul is quoting in our passage this morning. I will sow her for myself in the land. That is, the Jews living in Israel will believe Jesus is Lord. I will sow her for myself in the land. I will also have compassion on her who had not obtained compassion. And I will say to those who were low on me, not my people, you are on me, my people. And they will say, you are my God. Now, he has already made a very similar prophecy in Hosea 1.10. Let me read it to you. There, Hosea writes, Yet the number of the sons of Israel will be like the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured or numbered. There is coming a day in the land of Israel where the people of Israel will be, the prophet says, like the sand of the sea. Why? Because they're going to be gathered from all over the world and brought back into that place we call Israel because of an irrevocable promise God made to Abraham. And in that place where it is said, you are not my people, it will be said, you are sons of the living God. There is going to come, and we're going to study it in Romans 11, a great reversal amongst the Jewish people. The Jewish people who, for the most part, rejected Jesus as Messiah, they are going to come and believe in him. Now, again, let me read Romans 9, verse 25. Stay here in Hosea. I will call those who are not my people, my people, and her who is not my beloved, beloved. What is that a quotation of? Hosea 2, 23, the verse that we just read. All right, now... Read Romans 9, 26. You can turn back. And it shall be in that place where it was said to them, you are not my people, 
There they shall be called sons of the living God. That's the verse we just read in Hosea 1.10 just a moment ago. God's plans for Israel are not over. There will come a time when the nation will accept Jesus as their promised Messiah. To listen again to today's message entitled, Stumbling Over Truth, use the Search the Scriptures app, available for smartphones and tablets, or visit us online at searchthescriptures.org. And if you would like a CD or DVD copy, call Search the Scriptures at 877-787-7478 and request program ROM49, entitled Stumbling Over Truth. Tomorrow, Pastor Carl's wife Audrey is in this time slot with her program for women, Mothering from the Heart. And when we return Monday, we'll continue our study from the Book of Romans. Join us then as we search the Scriptures.